Hello, and welcome to Insights, a podcast from Understanding Society, the study that captures life in the UK in the 21st century. Understanding Society is a longitudinal survey. Every year, we ask each member of thousands of the same households across the UK about different aspects of their life. In each episode of this series, we're exploring how our data has been used in a key area. We'll look at what we found, what it tells us, and what we can learn from it. I'm your host, Catherine MacDonald, and in this episode, we're looking at how the physical environment in which you live can significantly affect your well-being and, in turn, your life. Here to discuss this are Dr. Sarah Knight from the University of York, Professor Brendan Birchall from Magdalen College, Cambridge, and Graham Duxbury, Chief Executive of Groundwork, a charity that seeks to empower communities through environmental action. So, Sarah, policymakers are increasingly using measures of subjective well-being to inform public policy. Can you start us off by telling us a bit about how they define and measure well-being? Sure. So, well-being is probably used interchangeably with health, and they influence each other, and they're on the same um, spectrum. But well-being is described as a multi-dimensional, person-specific, culture-specific kind of dynamic phenomenon. So. Probably traditionally, it's measured objectively. So things like gross domestic product, income, so forth, um, are used as proxies for well-being. And more recently, there's the inclusion of physiological metrics, such as cognitive functioning, um, stress response, things like that. So they're objective measures. And then on the other side are subjective measures of well-being. And that's a much more recent phenomenon. So it's shortened down. It's a person's cognitive and effective evaluation of their own life. And again, there's lots of definitions of subjective well-being. It's said to be three components of it, eudaimonic, hedonic and life satisfaction. So eudaimonic is this kind of reference to are your activities worthwhile? Hedonic relates more to happiness and emotion and it can be positive or negative. And life satisfaction, again, a kind of evaluation of satisfaction with your daily activities. And these are really picked up probably in the UK in about 2010. David Cameron brought in the measures of national well-being to try and understand the different drivers of well-being across society. And then this is picked up, it's probably now used across all government departments in some form or another as a kind of measure of progress. And countries have taken this forward. So, for example, New Zealand have a well-being economy. So well-being is really embedded as a measure of progress. Some people will say it's a better measure of progress than things like GDP. Well-being is embedded in things like the levelling up agenda and international programmes such as the Sustainable Development Goals. And a good example of measurement of it used by our government is used by the um, Office of National Statistics Wellbeing 4, and they measure life satisfaction, how worthwhile you rate your daily activities, and your level of happiness and your level of anxiety. So it's great to know that all of that is being monitored and evaluated. In your study, Can Clean Air Make You Happy?, you found that increases in air pollution from nitrogen dioxide, which is a gas mostly produced in diesel fumes, had a negative impact on people's life satisfaction and that the size of that impact was comparable to many, as you called them, big hitting life events. Can you tell us more about that? So yeah, me and some colleagues at University of York, we used the harmonised data set of British Household Panel Survey and the UK Household Longitudinal Study. So we took about 50,000 adults from England and had a look as they moved about space and time, 
trying to control for other determinants of well-being, do we see a relationship between life satisfaction and how people experience air pollution? So our main result showed that an increase in 10 micrograms of nitrogen dioxide reduces your life satisfaction by 0.3 on a Likert scale of 7. That sounds meaningless, I think. So we wanted to find a better way to communicate how meaningful that is for people. We wanted to compare that to how that effect size is comparable to other determinants of well-being. So things like um, employment status and relationship status. If people were raised to the legal limit of NO2, which is 40 micrograms per metres cubed, the loss in life satisfaction was comparable to what we found within the data set to things like marital separation and about 50% of going from employed to unemployed. So two really big determinants of life satisfaction, your happiness, and the effect of this kind of level of exposure to energy was much more substantive than we were expecting. And obviously, that's the effect on life satisfaction. And nitrogen dioxide can also cause physical health problems as well, can't it? Can you tell us a bit about what they are? Sure. So nitrogen dioxide, there's lots of research that shows it as a really big contributor to respiratory tract problems. So it probably exacerbates existing health conditions and can also bring about new conditions. So asthma will be a big one. Short term exposure to this can irritate your lung lining, irritate asthma, coughing, etc. More chronic exposure has been linked to increases in cardiovascular and respiratory issues. And there's a huge contribution from nitrogen dioxide to early deaths. And one of the main arguments you made in your research really clearly was that exposure to nitrogen dioxide is something that we all face to some extent with, you know, diesel run cars. So therefore, the benefits of reducing those emissions would be significant. When we relate it to these other determinants of well-being, you think, you know, not everybody is unemployed, not everybody is single, but everyone to an extent is exposed to air pollution. It has different causes, but it's experienced by everybody. So a reduction in air pollution is likely to affect everybody, but there are probably gradients to the size of the effect for different people. So some people are more exposed than others. So there's likely to be greater benefits for different demographics. But on the whole, it's experienced by everybody. So a reduction will likely have really broad societal impact. And as with many things, the UK is not geographically equal when it comes to exposure to nitrogen dioxide either, is it? What did you find there? Yeah, absolutely. It's really interesting. And it's possibly what most people would expect. So where there's transport and where there's people, there's nitrogen dioxide. Uh, Road vehicles, industry, etc. are really big causes, are really big outputs of nitrogen dioxide. So we had a look at the spatial distribution of NO2 and looked at the highest and the lowest values across England. So the average value in the southwest in kind of Cornwall, Devon is about three micrograms per metres cubed. And this is a kind of a, an annual ambient mean level. And the value for London is just under 60. Now, this was taken for 2014 when we did this. So there's quite a significant gap there. And if you think an increase in 10 micrograms um, that we found has a significant relationship with your life satisfaction, actually, that you can see then that kind of sits within these values quite clearly. The legal limit set by the EU based on World Health Organization guidelines is 40 micrograms per metres cube. So you can see that, for example, in places like London, you get a regular exceedance of this value. So there's and there's two values. There's annual exceedance and there's daily limit exceedances. And again, these are based all by the World Health Organization's guidelines for what it means for people and for society. In 2018, London exceeded this daily limit within the first five days of the year. 
And there are places also, and it's not just London, there's London, there's other big cities, places with airports and uh, ports, big transport hubs, they also have these exceedances. And I do believe in 2018, the UK government was taken to court over this. So what do we do to reduce the amount of exposure? Is it only about turning to cleaner vehicles or can the damage be offset by time spent in green spaces, for example? Yeah, so there's probably two ways. There'll be things like reducing your car journeys will over reduce air pollution. You know, there's also not the onus necessarily on the individual. There's things about kind of in transport industries and so forth that need addressing. But as you know, as we know, diesel cars are being slowly reduced in this country. So, and we do see a reduction in NO2 over time, which is fab and probably largely attributed to that policy change. For individuals, I would say avoid hotspots. So obviously central London at major commuting and transport times, you can simply think about your routes, about how you're moving about places. So even if you're just one road off the main busy road, your exposure to air pollution is significantly lower. So find quieter routes at quieter times in pedestrianised and green places. And of course, COVID was a huge natural experiment about this. We saw huge reductions in air pollution as a consequence of this. And there were really, really clear benefits to health, to well-being and to how people are enjoying their cities. So let's move on to talk about green spaces now then. Another study you did also looked at the importance of the ecological quality of public open spaces for well-being. What did you compare there and what did you end up finding? So we looked at London for this study and wanted to look at the relationship between public green and blue spaces and well-being. They're green, anything with vegetation on, blue, anything with water on. And do we see a different relationship when we look at places of higher ecological quality? So we looked at places called sinks, which is a London designation, and it refers to sites of importance for nature conservation. So places that have good habitat for wildlife. So high ecological quality spaces, are they better for people than just green spaces in general? Is quality better than just provision? So we used really high resolution data from Giggle, the Green Space Information for Greater London Centre. They have really nice model data, which identifies all locations across London, which are deficient in access to nature. And we use that data set with the BHPS, with the British Household Panel Survey, to see as people move through time and space, is their change in wellbeing related to a change in um, proximity to high quality green space? We found that being deficient to access to nature is bad for life satisfaction. So it's not just provision that's important for life satisfaction, it's the quality of the green space and the blue space. Understood. Okay, thank you for that. Brendan, I'd like to come to you now. In your research, you approached it slightly differently and you asked whether public space has to be green in order to improve well-being. So before we dive into that, were you working on the same definitions as Sarah, as you know, so as we move forward and talk about green, blue and hard surface, can you just run through those definitions for us? Yes, we did look at particularly green spaces, parks, countryside, footpaths, those sorts of things. And as Sarah was describing, we found all sorts of benefits for people's well-being of having access to those sorts of spaces. We didn't do the sort of fine grain differentiation between those spaces that Sarah did. And there's all sorts of reasons that people give. There's that closeness to nature that Sarah was talking about, being able to take exercise, being able to meet other people in those places. And we replicated those findings. But what was more interesting about our research is we went to look at the other types of public spaces in London, 
And those are the hard spaces. These can be children's playgrounds, skate parks, marketplaces, civic areas, town square type uh, spaces. And there's less research on those. When you look at the outer areas of London, you get a lot more of the green space and they tend to be the more affluent areas. These other hard surface spaces tend to occur closer to the centre of London and often in the less affluent areas. So that's where we think well-being might be particularly important. And when we first looked at those hard spaces, we didn't find any effect on well-being. And there wasn't much research to go before. It was very much an exploratory study. Interestingly, though, when we started to differentiate between them, we did notice it really mattered where those hard spaces were. And it mattered who the people using them were as well. That if they were in an area that was perceived to be safe, the sort of area you'd be happy to walk around, say, in the evening or after dark, then there clearly was a benefit we found to people having those spaces, those public spaces close to where they lived. But if you lived in an area where you didn't feel safe, then those areas could become threatening to you, we hypothesise. And there we actually found the opposite. We found they could have a negative effect on people's well-being. Did you get a sense of why that is? And, and if so, what we could do to make them beneficial regardless of where they are? We weren't able to follow up our research and do what we'd have liked to do, some more qualitative research to really dig deeper into why people had these reactions to public spaces, these hard spaces. And they are different in a number of different ways, clearly, to the green spaces that has been so much research on. They tend to be much smaller, for instance, and so they tend to, if anything, force or encourage people to be closer to other people using that space. So if you're in a, say, a children's play area or a small area where the sport's going on, then you're likely to more likely to have contact with other people, at least, you know, sense that you're in a group of other people. And that can be a very positive thing if you resonate with those people, if you think you have things in common, you feel safe around those people. But of course, if you're feeling threatened by those people, you think that there's a threat to your safety, there might be sexual harassment going on, there might be people engaging in unsocial behaviours, then that's when we're going to find that threat overcomes the benefits of those hard spaces. So it's really important where you put those spaces and also how you design those spaces to encourage the good things that we can get from those spaces and discourage the ways in which they can actually have a negative impact on people's sense of them. The other important dimension to it is who's experiencing those spaces. Again, we're just so lucky to have these really rich data sets about London and about you know and people's well-being through the Understanding Society data set. So we could get a, a sense of how people related to their local community, which is so important. It comes up again and again in studies of urban living, studies of sociology and psychology. We understood the tenure and we could differentiate people who owned their homes, who rented their homes, are in social housing, renting social housing. And the people who were renting social housing in particular, it magnified this effect. And we presume that people often in that sort of housing can be more vulnerable. So they can benefit more from interaction with other people, maybe helping them to overcome loneliness, which we know is such an important issue in the UK and in London. But if they're feeling threatened, again, they probably feel maybe more vulnerable to that threat than other people. When you put it all together, all your thoughts and findings together, what policy recommendations were you able to make as a result of your research? It's one of those bits of research. We think we've opened up a whole area that these things really matter, but how they matter and how they actually translate into the designer space. We couldn't come up and say, this is what you need to do. 
you need to consider like giving people hard surface spaces near their homes isn't necessarily a good thing. It could be a negative thing. You need to look at the whole safety issue, how safe people feel in going around their local neighborhood. And you need to look at the vulnerability of the people using those spaces. So I think there's a lot to think about. And we hope that there'll be a lot more research. You know, we already have a really good understanding through Sarah's research and other research like it, of the possible benefits and green space, how that works. We know a lot less about hard space. We don't even know much about how much there is. For instance, in our research, we didn't include pavements. And in some places in London, pavements make up the vast majority of those hard spaces. And again, we know that in some areas you get really positive life on pavements. In other case, places, they, they're seen as as harsh, threatening, unpleasant environments. So we absolutely need to have a much deeper understanding of the way that this hard space is important in people's lives, particularly those people living in the less affluent areas and nearer the centres of big cities. Absolutely. As you say, you know, a complex set of elements to consider, not just one quick, easy fix. Graham, I'd like to bring you in here. How would you react to the research findings that Brendan and Sarah have talked about? Well, I guess I'd say initially that I'm not surprised by the findings that are coming out from both of those pieces of work, but I'm really pleased that we're able to continue deepening our understanding of these issues. So we all know, don't we, that the link between environmental quality and well-being has been well-established for many years with all sorts of stats and figures flung about to try and evidence that. I think Public Health England in 2020, we're talking about more than few billion pounds in health costs could be saved if everyone had good access to high quality green space. So there's the kind of physical benefits of that, the greener the neighbourhood, the lower obesity rates and reduced cardiovascular mortality. There's the mental health benefits of all of that. So green space triggers positive emotions, reduces anxiety, improves life satisfaction, as we've heard. And there's even a study I, I know about even having a view of trees outside your hospital window helps you recover quicker from whatever procedure you've had. So all of this is well established, but it's excellent to be able to kind of, as I say, deepen that understanding. I'm particularly interested in Brendan's work around the hard spaces because this isn't kind of fully studied or understood. And I'm sure there's something here about the degree to which people feel able to connect and interact and feel part of the place in which they're in and having spaces to do that, having spaces where you feel comfortable, where you feel safe is going to be a fundamental to all of that. It's, it's kind of the social infrastructure that we all need in order to feel good about ourselves and our place in the world. And then the other bit that I think is always an issue in these conversations is the social gradient and the inequality. So we know that exposure to environmental harms and access to environmental benefits is massively unequal in our society. So if you were to map air pollution levels and flood risk levels and extreme heat levels and access to green space levels and overlay that on disadvantage and deprivation indices, you'd find a pretty solid correlation. So, yeah, it all kind of fits with the pattern that we've seen from previous research. It adds more detail, but it also fits with our kind of anecdotal evidence that we get from the work that we do on the ground in and with communities, engaging them in projects and activities to do with the design and development of spaces in their neighbourhood. Absolutely. And as you say, really important to have research like this to provide an evidence base on which hopefully decisions can be made and policy can be informed. Tell us what Groundwork aims to do and a bit about how it does that. So Groundwork's been around for 40 years. We're having a little anniversary moment this year. And we were set up very specifically at a specific point in time with a specific aim 
it was a kind of time of crisis, late 70s, early 80s, where there was a recognition that communities were being buffeted by forces seemingly beyond their control. So at the time, it was all about deindustrialization. It was about social tensions arising as a result of mass unemployment. And it was about the environmental degradation that went along with that post-industrial change, I guess. And the experiment that we were set up as, we were set up as an experiment, as Operation Groundwork, was to put some professional skills at the disposal of local communities so that they could fashion practical solutions to some of those issues at a neighbourhood level. So that became, you know, a lot about urban greening. It became about community organising. It became about the kind of confidence and skills and employability benefits that can result from that kind of work. And gradually, you know, that went from a one-off project on Merseyside to a national network and, and indeed an international movement these days. And the same principles really are still in play. The same focus on practical solutions, the same focus on helping communities make decisions, take control, get more involved in the way assets are managed and services are run in their local area, especially to do with the kind of physical fabric of those local areas. And that's just playing out against a backdrop of different crises. So, you know, the pandemic and the health inequality crisis that that demonstrated and highlighted and exacerbated straight into a cost of living crisis, underpinning all of this, a climate and nature emergency. So what our projects, programs and services are all about is trying to support the resilience of communities against that backdrop and in that context, but also to foster community-led action, uh, really practical solutions on some of those, you know, big environmental challenges. And that could be projects that will be very pertinent to today's discussion, such as planting green screens around school playgrounds. I think I saw a number of uh, about six and a half thousand schools are in areas with dangerously high levels of air pollution. So simple measures about kind of greening the outside of their school playgrounds can make an appreciable difference. It might be about work with into climate-proof landscapes, the work with communities, local authorities, housing associations, to make sure local areas are more resilient to surface water runoff and extreme heat and so on. And quite often we kind of you know gravitate towards particular places, particular community hubs that we might facilitate or manage where a lot of these activities can go on together where a lot of volunteering activity can take place and people feel a kind of sense of ownership of that place. And then from that place, we can ripple out services and activities across a wider neighbourhood. And when you look at the statistics that Groundwork cites to evidence why your work is so important, they are really startling. So just to quote a few, 75% of people say they feel unable to influence decisions about what happens in their local area. Nearly half of young people say they feel they don't belong to their own neighbourhood. And 40% of young people admit to feeling overwhelmed by the climate crisis. They are staggering, aren't they, those figures? They are, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And it's a feature and it's a principle of our work, really, that if you can focus on kind of practical tangible solutions, they can become a springboard for deeper levels of engagement, greater levels of community-led action and decision-making. And there is this kind of empowering effect. And that plays out across the spectrum, obviously, you know, for some people who traditionally have been marginalised in some of these conversations, that might just be about having a voice 
and feeling that you know you are being listened to in the way that decisions are being made and public spaces are being designed and developed. For others, it might be support we can provide to help people become a more recognised community leader. You know, to take on that responsibility of driving forward action and activity. And there is a lot of focus at the moment on community power as a concept. Who has it? How do we foster it? How do you devolve kind of power and responsibility to local residents, local communities, so that they can work effectively alongside? public bodies and civil society organisations. And I just think these issues that we're talking about of the quality of local environments, the degree to which our shared spaces are hard grey spaces or high quality green spaces, the role of the local environment, it can be really, really powerful in nurturing greater levels of community power. It's everybody's business. It's a shared concern. Everybody benefits from their spaces and places outside their front door or at the end of the street. It's a visible, a very visible indicator of the way things change in a neighbourhood. It's either on the up or on the way down. You know, the classic broken window theory, if no one's looking after a public space, then that tends to kind of create a cycle of decline that needs to be arrested and needs to be remedied. And a lot of the projects that we get involved in and that we support in these spaces can genuinely be community-led and owned. So there are simple tasks. There are lots of different tasks at lots of different levels for people of lots of different abilities. And if we're going to, you know, address some of those inequality issues and those access issues and those quality issues that Sarah was talking about. People need to feel that these spaces are relevant to them. They need to feel safe in them. They need to see people using them that are like them so that they feel comfortable in these spaces. So there's a huge scope for using local environments as a way of kind of getting traction on bigger societal issues. But in and of itself, there's a massive job to be done to make sure that those public spaces, those green spaces are of high quality are relevant, are accessible, and are contributing to the kind of wider goals that we need to have around nature recovery and and tackling climate change. And Brendan, Sarah, presumably you would both totally echo what Graham has said there and how powerful the work of groundwork and organisations like Groundwork is. Yes, that makes total sense to me. And I know from my own personal experience of living in cities and living in the countryside, how much that sense of ownership and interaction with the local environment can bring a community together. But we do have to remember that with the public hard spaces, they seem to equally often doing damage to people as they are doing benefits to people. So understanding that difference, and if we can better understand it, then I think we can really take that sort of work that Graham and other organisations are doing further so we can maximise the benefits from that very valuable work. Yeah, absolutely echo what Brendan said. And I think Groundwork does an excellent job in terms of connecting people with nature. I think there's kind of a real disconnect with nature in our country. And, you know, we are one of the most depleted in biodiversity countries in Europe. So involvement in things like green social prescribing projects, kind of nature being suggested to people, getting people to take ownership of the spaces around them, to connect them and to really leverage those benefits from being in spaces and also improving them for themselves and for the environment as well. So, I mean, sort of last question to all of you and Graham, I'd like to come to you first. If you could say three things to policymakers and planners who are looking at physical space and how it's used right now, what would you say? I'd start with health. 
We really need some leadership on this from the health sector, from the health perspective. So we've got integrated care boards, integrated care systems, which might give us another lever into this conversation because we know the solution to long-term NHS and care funding is better prevention. And we know that the way in which we design and manage open spaces and the environments on which we all depend is going to be a crucial part of that. So that would be my first bit. The second one is let's make the most of the money funding opportunities that there currently are. So we are committed to spending lots of money on levelling up funds and pound funds and mayors have got, you know, devolved powers around transport and skills, etc. There's an awful lot that can be done around green infrastructure and open space and public space and pride of place that isn't necessarily being done. So we've just done a little bit of research that shows that less than 5% of the money spent or allocated through those funds at the moment is going towards projects with a clear focus on green infrastructure, for instance. And then the last one for me is to recognise and invest in proper community engagement and community development. So we've got to make all of this stuff, green infrastructure, hard open spaces relevant, and we can use that as a springboard for greater levels of community-led action on a range of other issues. But community engagement doesn't just happen by itself. It's a skill set. It needs to be invested in. It needs to be supported. And Brendan, what would your three things be? I could only come up with two things to add to Graham's uh, great points. The first is how important it is to include well-being and health into the design of the places we live in particular cities. We're going to have to redesign cities, I think, quite considerably in the near future if we're going to meet our climate targets to decarbonise the way we go about our daily lives. And so while we're doing that, we shouldn't lose sight of the other ways in which we can positively use those environments to tackle other social problems, such as health, such as tackling loneliness. The other point I'd like to make is I think this shows a really nice example of when we're joining up the people collecting and making data available, and we're really grateful to Understanding Society, and we're really grateful to the way in which London's provided such good data to researchers. That feeds through to people like myself who can make sense of that data, and it's often these relationships have seen Sometimes they're very clear, like the benefits of green spaces. Other times they're quite complex and they need social scientists often to to really be able to unpick that. And then the way that can then feed through to policymakers. And if we've got that sort of join up between the people providing data, people analysing data and policymakers, then it makes me feel very positive about the way we can go forward with society and really do things to improve people's lives, the way that they experience their day-to-day environment. And Sarah, final word to you then, what would your three messages to policymakers and planners looking at physical space and how it should be used, what would yours be? Mm, Great ones already from Brendan and Graham. I'll add to this, I'll say quality is important, not just provision. So I think it's really important to say that, you know, green, grey, blue, hard, whatever the space is, it has to be about quality beyond just provision because these places aren't homogenous. Secondly, and similarly, quality is subjective. Um, It's a perceived aspect of space and this varies across demographics, socioeconomic gradients, gender, age, all the intersections of these things. So I think we just need better understanding about what this means. And I think this is this kind of context specific stuff. You can put a place somewhere, but who lives there as well? Who's around it and who does it supply? 
And I think that context is really important. And it's probably related to my third point as well, is about this really important need to connect people with nature. And it's a priority for loads of different government departments and bodies, connecting people with nature, harnessing nature connection to really leverage health and well benefits from green infrastructure, from environmental interventions. It's a really cost-effective way of achieving environment and health co-benefits. So again, investing in friends of groups, for example, getting building green infrastructure that's close to people. So this feeds into kind of urban design, urban planning and so forth. Because there's a biodiversity crisis, there's a climate crisis, and there's a health, loneliness, well-being crisis. So investing in green infrastructure and blue infrastructure, and as we've heard, grey infrastructure, is a really, really important way to address these crises. My thanks to Sarah Knight, Brendan Birchall and Graham Duxbury. You can find out more about how the data from Understanding Society is changing practice and informing policy by visiting the website understandingsociety.ac.uk. This was a research podcast production. Thank you for listening and remember to subscribe wherever you receive your podcasts.